Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And when Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, your word which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our lives to lead us in the ways everlasting. Encourage us, strengthen us by the power of your spirit working in and through the preaching of your word. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. You know, when it uh, comes to Christmas movies, you know, there's this unending debate about one particular film. That film is Die Hard, right? Is it a Christmas movie or isn't it? It's the, it's the great Christmas debate. And despite where you fall on that debate, for the record, I'm, I'm team Christmas movie. We can have that, you know, afterwards we can have a conversation about that. But the reason why people would argue that this film, Die Hard, whether you've seen it or not, it doesn't matter. It's a classic, just action flick that happens to happen during Christmas time. And, but the reason people argue it isn't a Christmas movie is it doesn't feel very Christmassy, right? It doesn't have any of those fun Christmas themes of hope and, and joy. Uh, it doesn't have any Christmas characters like Elf or Charlie Brown Christmas or It's a Wonderful Life. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you noticed, as we continue in, during our Advent series, we're... we're, we're using selected passages from the, the lectionary that the church at large uses to read through during, during Advent season. We're, so we're going picking the, the Matthew passages from there. One of the things that's striking about the passages in, in this cycle of lectionary reading is how unchristmassy they are, at least by definition of what we consider Christmassy, right? Happy, cheery, Romantic even. You know, we think Hallmark movies, and I think we, we love those Christmas themes because they, they meet many of our felt needs, right? You're having a bad year. 
That's okay. Christmas is here. It's going to cheer you up, make you feel good about yourself. Here's some hot chocolate. Having a tough go at life. Well, Christmas nostalgia is here to right every wrong. Cook your almond roca. Uh, it's going to put a smile on your face. It's going to cheer you up. It's going to cheer your heart. Except that, you know, only this version of Christmas and those things aren't bad things. They're good things. But if, you, if that is the, the extent to your Christmas and what it offers you, it, it offers you very nothing. It, it offers you very little because it doesn't rescue you from anything. It just kind of numbs those pains in your life for a moment. But as soon as December 26th happens on the calendar, all the sorrow you were hoping to stuff under the bed comes rushing back over you. You and I are in need of something much more long-lasting than just nostalgia, than just good vibes. What we need is a king to come and right every wrong. What we need is a, is a new kingdom to come and tear down all the strongholds of evil. What we need is a king to come and establish his eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this is exactly what John comes proclaiming. Here in these opening chapters of, of Matthew, we find you know, one of the more strange characters in all the Bible who doesn't really fit into any box in John the Baptist. He's a strange character. Right, John the Baptist, who in each of the four Gospels uh, leads off the Christmas story, preparing the way for the coming kingdom. And he doesn't come to us neat and tidy, buttoned up, but he comes to us kind of stumbling out of the wilderness. He's eating wild honey, eating locusts, he's dressed like an animal, telling people to repent, calling people broods of vipers. These don't seem like very Christmassy themes. You're not putting those on your Christmas cards. Although some of you might want to. Um, uh, you're just supposed to laugh at that one. Come on, that was a good one. Uh, but he, he doesn't fit into our boxes, right? John the Baptist, in a way, is kind of like the John McClain of Christmas. He doesn't fit with, with, the, he doesn't fit with the vibe. He, he doesn't fit with the nativity scenes on our mantles. But he's exactly what we need. You know, if Advent is about the start of the world being put right, if that's the promise of Advent and the coming kingdom, the world being put right, then it needs to be messy. Because righting wrongs, righting evils, overcoming darkness is a messy endeavor. And this is what John comes to do. Preparing us for this coming kingdom. And Jesus is on his heels establishing this coming kingdom. And in a world of suffering, in a world where we suffer under the kingdom of Satan, in a world... Uh, under the rule of the kingdom of darkness, in a world where we deal with sin, in a world where we deal with relational strife, unable to make peace on our own. In this world, we are in desperate need of a new kingdom to break in, to shatter the old and establish the new, to take roots in our hearts, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our countries, and in the world, and to bear fruit. And as John stumbles onto the scene and takes center stage here this season of Advent, he comes to prepare us for this coming kingdom and to show us what it means to be prepared for this coming kingdom. I think there's, there's two aspects of John's message that I want to focus on this morning. And they're these. One, that, that God's kingdom comes with an invitation. And secondly, that God kingdoms, God's kingdom comes with a judgment. So first, right, God's kingdom comes with an invitation for us. Let's look back at our text here, verse one and two, it says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here, John the Baptist, right, steps onto the pages of, of Advent and the pages of scripture 
saying, the kingdom of God is coming, it's imminent, it's going to happen any moment now. And with that announcement, there's, you know, an explicit invitation, come and join this kingdom. His call is simple, repent, and you get to join this coming kingdom of God. And of course, when you think about repentance, we know that repentance means more than just saying you're sorry a bunch of times. Like if I said, hey, I'm sorry I stole money out of your wallet, and I, the next day I have to say it again, hey, sorry, I don't know how that money got back in my hand again from your wallet, but sorry, I did that again. That's not really repentance. Repentance, the word here means to turn around. So it means you're going one direction, and, and now you're going a completely different direction. It means to turn around and to go the opposite direction. It's a reorientation. And so John's call for the people to repent here is an invitation. Leave your current allegiances and pledge them to another, to the coming kingdom of God. And so this whole character of John the Baptist coming and doing this kind of begs two questions of us. The first is this, who is John to come into the, step onto the pages of scripture out of nowhere to say these things? Who is he to do this? And secondly, isn't he talking to the people that already belong to the kingdom of God as he's talking to the Jewish people, the, the Israelites? Uh, so why is he telling it to them? So to answer these questions first, who is John the Baptist to, to proclaim these things, to, to speak on behalf of God? Well, for some context here, it has been 400 years since the Israelites had heard from a prophet. 400 years, and God seemingly has been silent to, to the people of God. The last prophet that they heard from was Malachi, who kind of ends the, the Old Testament. And he, at the end of the, 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 the prophecies of Malachi, he prophesied that, that Elijah would come and prepare the way of the Lord. Right? Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, greatest prophets that the Israel had ever seen, Elijah, who's one of two people who didn't actually die, but went up to heaven on a chariot of fire. And so the last prophet they heard of in Malachi held out this expectation that, listen, the next person you're going to hear from is Elijah, come back into the world to proclaim and to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so it's out of there that we get John the Baptist stumbling onto the scene 400 years later and dressing like a prophet. And more than that, he's identifying himself with Elijah. He's dressing like Elijah. He's fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. And actually we find Jesus himself says, John the Baptist, is Elijah come back to proclaim and prepare the way of the, of the Lord. And so Jesus is coming on, on the heels of the coming of Elijah. And so that time has finally come. That, that long-awaited day when the Messiah would come and right every wrong and, and establish his kingdom on the world, that day has finally come. Right out of the silence comes Elijah to proclaim this coming kingdom. The wait is over. The kingdom is imminent in the world. So John the Baptist has all authority to come and to say and to speak on behalf of God as all prophets did. They spoke on behalf of God. He, he has all authority to come and do this as he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. This leads to the second question, though. But shouldn't he be saying these things to the Gentiles, to those on the outside? Why would he be saying this to the, the Israelites, those who are on the inside? Well, we'll begin to see that come clear here in verses 5 to 6. So he's proclaiming this, and this, this happens. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this is a strange event. All these people of Israel, they listen to him. Seems innocent enough of an event. They, they go out in the wilderness. They 
say I'm sorry for my sins or baptize as good things to do. But what's happening here? Well, I think what the author, Matthew, is trying to point out is a reenactment event. Right? The people are going back into the wilderness to cross the Jordan, to re-enter the land. These events should sound familiar to us. They're reenacting the Exodus event. And as they once crossed the Jordan as a type of baptism motif to enter the land, so they again go out to come back into the waters of baptism. And this reenactment event actually becomes more radical when we consider that baptism in this manner was not typical for Jewish people. Baptisms in this manner up until, up until this point were for Gentiles who had converted, right? Gentiles were outsiders. They were seen as unclean. And so they had to go through a cleansing ritual to join the clean people of Israel. And so that ritual was baptism. So they'd go through the waters of baptism, become a clean people, and then join the people of God. And so here, as the people of Jerusalem and Judea go out into the wilderness and reenter the land, being baptized, he's saying that they need to be clean. He's calling the people unclean. He is saying that you have to exit the land in order to re-enter the land. They're, they're exiled from the land as unclean and, and brought back into the land as clean. In this, John is not so subtly telling the people they have become unclean like the Gentiles. John is saying you've become as, as an enemy to God. You've become like Egypt. And in order to be a part of this new coming kingdom, you have to be made new. You have to go through another exodus event. And unless they acknowledge their need, their sin, their uncleanness, unless they go through these purity rituals, they cannot be saved. This is why John is speaking this message to them, because this is not a people who are ready. They're not ready for the coming kingdom. They are unclean. And they need to repent and be cleansed in baptism in order to ready themselves for this coming Messiah. So this is what John is doing. He's preparing the way with this invitation of salvation. When God speaks to his people, he speaks to them as a way of invitation. He's saying, listen, come be a part of this long-awaited kingdom. It is actually for you that I come. Come and be a part of it. All that is promised within this new kingdom is, is yours. Forgiveness of sins, right? The, the end of oppression, peace, a good and gracious king to lead you. Turn towards the coming king, rest on his mercy to be saved, and he will save you. Repent and be saved. And what is repentance if not laying down any perceived power you have within yourself to save yourself, right? When you, when you don't repent, what you're saying is, listen, I'm fine. I'm good with this direction. I have no need to change and go a different way. I don't need anyone but myself to lead me and guide me. But when you repent, what you're doing is you're acknowledging, listen, I, I'm actually wrong. Repenting is an acknowledgement that you cannot save yourself, that you need something outside yourself to save yourself, that you need, you need a kingdom outside yourself, and that kingdom is coming here in Christ. You need to heed that invitation and repent. And in this, in every act of repentance, in a way, is a, is a reenactment of Exodus. Every, every act of repentance is an exodus out of one land and an entrance into a, another. It's a, it's a leaving one way and turning towards the way of the king. And we need this kingdom of God to come with this kind of power, because he's the only one that can make dead things alive. Because apart from the power of God, you and I can't even repent to join this kingdom. And we see a glimpse of this at the end of verse 9 where it says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? God is able from these stones to raise up children. Right? This is the power you and I need because we are dead. 
Romans says we're dead in our sin. Our hearts are hearts of stone. We need to be brought back to life. We need hearts of flesh. We need a power outside of ourselves to make this happen. We need a power outside ourselves to even be able to repent. And this is what the power of the kingdom does. With every invitation to repent is a call to rest on his power to make these things happen. And this repentance is a radical turning to Christ as an answer for your problems. Acknowledging that you are unclean and you can't make yourself clean on your own. And as you do this, we're called to, to walk on it, to bear fruit in the keeping of our repentance. You know, and this kind of hints us, repentance isn't just a one-time event for us. It is in some sense the, the entrance right into the kingdom of God, but once you're there, once you're part of his people, it's supposed to mark you. It's a way of life. Repentance keeps us in the path of righteousness, reminding us that, that we belong to, a, to another kingdom, to a, to a king. Right? Our lives are not our own. And over a lifetime, the people of God begin to bear fruit as they practice repentance. As it's built into their life, this humility to acknowledge that I cannot clean myself, I cannot make myself right. And over time, this repentance changes you. It changes what you love. It, it changes what you think is good. Over time, you become what you worship. And think about your own faith journeys. I'm guessing as you've learned to, to live a life of repentance, what you struggle with today is probably different than what you struggled with, in many ways, 10 years ago. Right? And the change is, is not fast. It's never as fast as we want. But it's part of the journey of faith, the journey that's made possible by the power of Christ alone. And as we consider this idea of repentance, I'll say, if you're here and you've never repented of your sin and you've never changed directions, turned towards Christ, if you've, if you've, there's an invitation here for you to repent. It's simple. It's a simple message. Repent, turn towards Christ. You know, one of the things that keeps us from doing that is this fear that we're letting something good go. But friends, this is where, you know, you, you, you will experience pain in letting go the kingdom of this world. We will experience a mini death of, of sorts. But when you let go and you experience that mini death, it's the only way to find a true life that's found in Christ. And his invitation is before you. Repent, turn towards him, depend on him and his power alone because his power alone has the power to save you. And when you do, he will. He promises to give you rest to bring you into his kingdom. And so when the, when the kingdom of God comes into this world, we find the first thing it does is it invites you into it. There's an hospitable aspect to it that God is calling those on the outside into his kingdom. God hasn't come to, to build a kingdom for himself to live in alone, but his desire is that it's full of, of people and his, his creatures. And, and when he comes, he first comes with an invitation. But there's another aspect to his coming, to this coming kingdom, and it's judgment. Because as he establishes his kingdom, he judges and destroys any competing kingdom. So the second thing we find here is God's kingdom comes with a judgment. God's kingdom comes with a judgment. Right? God's kingdom is coming to wage war on all competing kingdoms. And if you think about it throughout any country, if you're invading, one kingdom's invading another kingdom, one of those kingdoms is going to survive, and one of those kingdoms is going to die. And here we find that all competing kingdoms to God's kingdom find their root in the seed of the serpent. 
And we actually see this come out in John's interaction with the religious leaders here in verse 7. He says this. So this whole scene is happening. People are being baptized. They're confessing their sins. They're being cleansed. Beautiful moment. And then this happens. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's a wild moment. Uh, He he sees them coming. He knows that, hey, these guys are not here to repent. They're here to judge. Maybe they're going to report John and get him in trouble. These are people who don't have any need to repent because they think they're fine. He said, we have the blood of Abraham in us. And they don't see themselves as needing anything other than that. And what does God call them? Or what does John call them here? He calls them a, a brood of vipers. What is John talking about here? Well, what he's connecting them to is the seed of the serpent. Right? They, not so subtly, John the Baptist is saying, listen, you are of the devil. Pharisees, Sadducees, spiritual leaders, you, they, these are not just misguided men here trying to do their best, but, you know, we made a few mistakes, so we, maybe we killed the Messiah, our bad. You know, it's not like that. These guys aren't just a couple guys making a couple innocent mistakes. They are actually of the seed of Satan. These were not good men. And it makes you wonder, well, how did this happen to these men? Aren't these the men that study Scripture? Aren't these the men that do all the right things? How in the world... Could that have happened to these men where these men, who presumably were once the seed of righteousness, and now have turned into the seed of the serpent? How does that happen? Well, I think we see it here in verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he's saying is this that they have presumed upon God. And their presumption upon God is what makes them children of Satan. Right? It isn't your blood that makes you true children of Abraham. It isn't their circumcision. It's not perfect worship. It's not the law keeping. He says here, it's repentance that bears fruit in the world that makes you children. Or in other words, it's a life of repentance. It's dependence on God. It's, It's the faith of Abraham that makes you the children of Abraham. He said, this isn't by your power. It's not by human hands and rituals that you become children. It's by God's power alone. So even our, even our re- repentance depends on the power of God. One of the things these religious leaders were known for is building systems, right? They'd, they'd built so many systems where they ended up not needing God at all. They had laws on laws to protect themselves from breaking the laws of God, which at first may seem like a, a good thing. And maybe at first it, it did have some good motives behind it. But in building these these systems, they had built an alternative kingdom where they were the kings, where they were the ones that got to say what's right and what's wrong. They became supreme rulers. And in doing this thing, seemingly good things, they've aligned themselves with Satan, the chief of serpents, Satan, who is the king of all alternative kingdoms. And then we see this in verse 10. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Because these people think that their heritage and their works will save them from the coming clash of kingdoms, and because their allegiance is with the enemy kingdom, it says their tree is being cut down. God's kingdom comes with judgment. The coming kingdom won't stand for this. Their systems 
are being torn down. And what we have here is another allusion to the, the coming destruction that's going to happen to the temple, to, to, the, to the systems that these guys have built up to save themselves. They're coming down. A winnowing is happening. It's coming. And unless there is repentance, a true repentance, which true repentance always bears fruit, unless that happens, they will not make it through it. Unless they turn from their presumptions, they will be swallowed up in the judgment that is coming for Satan and his kingdom. I think this should be a sobering reality to the coming of God's kingdom for us. Because the coming of God's kingdom both offers a comfort for us, his people. He's coming. He's going to destroy the works of darkness. And it's also terrifying because he comes with judgment. He comes with wrath, with his winnowing fork. These winnowing fork he's talking about here is used to sift grain from, from the, the chaff. And so they, they bring the grain into this, it's called the threshing floor. And they would have these giant pitchfork types of things that would toss the grain up in the air. And the lightest of breeze would blow the, the chaff away, which is this kind of light outer skin of the grain. And it would blow away because you wouldn't want it to be in your grain because it would make your breads taste bitter. And so you wanted that to get blown away. And one of the things that this is showing us is that, listen, the, the kingdom of Satan, the, the kingdoms of darkness are like that outer chaff. Those are the things that will not last. They will blow away. They will burn up. But God's kingdom is like that grain that, that falls. It, it will last. It's an eternal kingdom. The coming kingdom that is coming will judge all competing kingdoms. It will outlast them and it will establish itself as this eternal kingdom. So John is saying, listen, don't align yourselves with temporary things. These things will not last. Align yourself with the eternal kingdom of God. You know, for us, how, how easy is it for us to play religion? Right? We do the outward things. We, we, we get baptized. We come to the Lord's Supper. We, we sing songs. We confess sins. How easy is it for us to come and to play church? And yet our hearts are hearts of stone. This isn't to say that we shouldn't do these things week in and week out. Um, these aren't to say that even the outward rituals are, are bad. I think that they are given here as actually necessary parts of walking with God in repentance. Right? Even this judgment that's happening is coming on the heels of an outward sign of, of baptism for these people. So it's not that these physical signs are, are bad. That's, that's the wrong conclusion for us to draw from this. But it, unless they're paired with inward transformation, they have no power in and of themselves to save you. We too are like stones, right? We are lifeless in our religious pursuits on our own. We need a power from outside to come into this world, to enliven our hearts with stone. And this is actually exactly what Jesus has come to do, right? He comes in his spirit with fire to make stones alive. Right? The miracle of Christmas is more than just a virgin giving birth. But the true miracle is God coming to establish his kingdom from stones. That is not normal. Stones do not have flesh and blood, and yet by the power of God, they are made alive. They are given the blood of Abraham, the blood of faith, the blood of God's people. This is what God has come to do, to make stones alive. And he doesn't establish his kingdom by identifying with the religious elite and leaders of the day. But who does Jesus identify with? He actually identifies with the unclean. Because what happens right after this moment? Right after this moment, Jesus comes and gets baptism and gets baptized right? Baptism, in, in baptism, he too goes under the waters. Jesus the king, Jesus the righteous one, 
Who is identifying as the unclean? The one that needs to be clean is identifying as an unclean Gentile. In this, he too is entering a type of exodus moment so he could come back into the land and lead his people into what? Into all righteousness. This is profound truth within this Christmas story is that we serve a God who draws near to his people. He identifies as one of us to make us like him. And he, as he does this, he makes us living stones of the temple where he dwells and he builds his kingdom with you and I. Sending us into the wilderness to be the voice like John the Baptist and every other good prophet before him proclaiming the, the kingdom that has come in to the world through Christ. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of love, love, the kingdom of hope, the kingdom of all glory, the kingdom that's coming to destroy the works of darkness and set us free from our bondage. And this is what everyone in this room needs. We need the kingdom of God to come in and destroy the strongholds of darkness. Because on our own, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes. The competing kingdom is overwhelming for us. We see the darkness. I don't have to go through the list of things. We see it. And our only hope is the outside kingdom coming in and destroying those powers. And that is what is happening. Right, the power that created the universe has come into it. It's dwelt among us to rescue us, to liven our hearts. And as we consider these truths, I think there's a good question that we ought to ask ourselves is this, is where in our lives do we struggle to repent? Where, where are those places in our lives that we like to rule as if we are the king? Where are those places in our lives where we struggle to submit to God's rule and authority? My guess is many of us know where those places are because we love them. We hold on to them. Well, the answer for you is simple. And yet the most difficult thing ever, it's repent. Because those are the places that God wants to rule over in your life. I think what can make it hard for us is we think that losing something, right? If, if we lose control over an area and we make someone else king in an area, we think we're losing freedom or losing control. But the, the truth is this, any feeling of control and freedom in your life is an illusion. But the beauty of the gospel is that true freedom comes from submission to the only king who is kind. The only king who will tell you his Burden is light and his yoke is easy. True freedom comes from our union with Christ and our communion with his people. May we be a people who courageously learn to walk in repentance, bearing fruit in repentance, modeling Christ and his kingdom wherever we find ourselves. And may God's kingdom come to expand on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Friends, pray with me. God, we give you thanks for the truth that darkness will one day have its day and it will be no more in the light of your kingdom. Father, hasten the day that this would happen. Hasten the day of your coming kingdom to establish peace and joy and rest that our hope in you and in this kingdom we would see with our own eyes. Help us to wait well, to hope well, and to walk in the fruit of repentance all our days. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.